Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. This week, JF and I are resuming our series on the 22 trumps or major arcana of the tarot. This is the 10th episode where we have chosen one of these mysterious picture cards and built a conversation on it, ranging across philosophy, religion, art, and the occult. The tarot lends itself to this kind of treatment, as it is a book whose specialism is omniscience as Sherlock Holmes says of his brother, Mycroft. Human society and culture, the natural world, and the worlds above and below all find a place in the deck. It is the Book of Thoth, as Alistair Crowley has it, the mage's own guide and counsel. And the mage is the one who can turn every page of the book without flinching and greet each figure she meets with equanimity. She might find her equanimity challenged when she meets the devil, though, the 15th Arcanum. It is often missing from the oldest tarot decks, either because the decks didn't include the devil, or because people in the Middle Ages would throw the card out. In a more secular age, though, the devil isn't so scary. He might even be welcome, a bit of campy fun. There's a scene in my all-time favorite film musical, The Bandwagon, where an Orson Welles-like theatrical empresario is pitching a Faust tale to his investors. Yes, it is the devil come to claim the soul of the modern Faust man. With flapping wings and grinning evil eyes, corrupter of children, purveyor of evil. And then there is the suburban metalhead, Bobby, going up against Satan in a guitar duel on the Canadian sketch comedy show, Kids in the Hall. Bobby Terrence, I have been listening to your music in hell. You are the strongest guitar player I have ever seen. Oh, really? Yes. I must defeat you before you form a band. Well, then let's rock. It is so written, so now let it be played. Nerf, nerf, yeah. But maybe I'm a little too apt to take the devil lightly. You gotta give the devil his due. And what is due the devil is some acknowledgement that whatever we believe, whatever we hold dear, whatever warms our heart and gives us hope that there is decency yet in this world, the devil is there to wipe his ass on it. Professor types like myself are apt to get sentimental about transgression, but we are as shockable as anyone else. More, probably. I don't care who you are, there's something that shocks you. And if something shocks you, well, you know who you have to thank for it. In this episode, J.F. and I don't much go into this aspect of the devil. The devil as transgressor, blasphemer, and defiler. So, to give the devil his due, I will read a Baroque aria of obscenity from Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Way of Tarot, a passage from the section titled, And If the Devil Spoke. 
If you think your own most cherished beliefs are here being mocked and profaned in the most revolting manner, don't take it personally. The devil profanes all beliefs. The devil profanes belief as such. Quote, I am Lucifer, the light bearer. My magnificent gift to humanity is the absolute absence of morality. Nothing restricts me. I transgress every law. I burn the sacred books and constitutions. No religion can contain me. I destroy all theories and cause all dogmas to explode. In the depths of the depths of the depths, no one lives any deeper than I do. I am the source of all abysses. I am the one who gives life to dark grottos, the one who knows the center around which turn all densities. I am the viscosity of everything that vainly attempts to be definite, the supreme strength of magma, the stench that denounces the hypocrisy of perfumes, the carrion mother of every flower, the corrupter of vain minds who wallow in perfection. I am the murdered awareness of the perpetual ephemeral. It is me, imprisoned in the underground reaches of the world, who causes the stupid cathedral of faith to shake. It is me on my knees, biting the feet of the crucified until they bleed, who, without any shyness, shows off my wounds gaping like so many famished vaginas. I rape the putrid egg of your holiness. I bury the erection of my thought into the morbid dream of higher offense and spit in the face of their simulacra the cold sperm of my scorn. No peace with me, no peaceful little home, no candied gospels, no sugar virgin for the clammy tongues of hairy nuns. I royally defecate on the leprous birds of morality. I do not forbid myself from imagining the prophet on all fours being mounted by a horny donkey. I am the ecstatic songster of incest and the champion of all depravity. With the nail of my little finger, I delightedly slice open the belly of an innocent so I can dip my bread in his tripe. End quote. Don't forget to join the Patreon. What's your what's your personal history with the devil? Because mine goes way back. You mean the devil card or the no the being or that eminent personage? Yeah, the devil. <laughs> yes, uh, the devil is a figure. I was raised to believe that there was such a thing as the devil. I was not. You were not. I was not. I don't think most people are. Between my father's militant atheism and my mom's liberal Christianity, which did not have much place for the devil or hell. And then my adult engagement with Zen Buddhism, for which the concept of hell or evil is transformed out of recognition from Western concepts. This is a hypothesis I have not found necessary, the hypothesis of the devil. Right. I was actually very pleased when I read our known friend, Valentin Tonberg, uh, author of Meditations on the Tarot, right off the bat in the chapter on the devil card of the tarot, says that it does not do to look too carefully into evil. 
And he's like, all the other cards of the tarot, all the other uh, major arcana that he discusses, all of them constitute exercises, spiritual exercises, where you meditate on the card and you try to unify yourself with him. You become one with the card or what is figured on the card. And the meditation required to do so is the spiritual exercise that the tarot sets us. He's like, all except for the devil, because you don't want to become one with the devil. You don't want to identify with evil. Identifying with or realizing evil in yourself is not like realizing the tower in yourself or the star in yourself or whatever. He's like, so we have to develop a different, more distanced approach. He actually says that not only is it not recommended to try and identify yourself with the devil or with evil, but he says it's impossible because... Right. Yeah. Love, he writes, love is the vital element of profound knowledge, intuitive knowledge. Now, one cannot love evil. Evil mm -hmm. is therefore unknowable in its essence. One can understand it only at a distance as an observer of its phenomenology, which I find very interesting for all kinds of cool theological reasons maybe we can delve into, but the idea that evil is that which cannot be known. Later on, he says, the world of the devil or the world of evil is a chaotic world. It's by yes. definition chaotic. And one of my favorite tarot decks, the Gnostic Tarot, which I recommend to you all. I've mentioned it before. If you want to know more uh, about it, go to welkinsbooks.com, I believe. He made his devil card incredibly chaotic and confusing. Uh, it's just this weird blob of figures all kind of intermingled with this goatish face emerging from the chaos. It's really actually quite disconcerting as, a, as an image. And he explains that the, the nature of the card is confusion and that it is the essence of evil is a kind of unknowable confusion. And for that reason, you cannot meditate on it as you would other things. You know, from a Christian perspective, that's because evil, it's so confusing in its essence that you can even say it doesn't exist. According like St. Augustine would say, evil does not exist. It is yeah. simply the negation of being itself. So to know that, how can you know that? You know, you can't. Um, it's yeah. not there. <laughs> well, and this is my problem, yeah. you know, that every time I try to fix a bead on what it is we're talking about, whether it's the devil or whether it's evil, it just crumbles and falls apart in your hands. It does not present a unitary phenomenon, but I think as Tonberg says, sorry, our known friend says, it's a chaotic multiplicity. It reminds me that one of the great captains of hell is named Beelzebub, or perhaps Beelzebub is a sobriquet of Satan himself. I can't quite remember. Uh, no, he's usually seen as a, one of the lieutenants, you know, one of the top dogs, often distinguished from Satan. Baal means Lord. Uh -huh. Zebub means flies. Lord of the flies is Beelzebub. Right. Yeah. And I always wondered why Lord of the flies would be a name given to, if not the devil, at least a devil. And... It occurs to me that that actually is a poetically apt image, imagining a devil presenting as a cloud of flies. Yeah, a swarm. Yeah, a swarm. A swarming multiplicity is a pretty great image for what Tonberg says about evil. Yeah.
The world of the hierarchies of evil appears like a luxuriant jungle where you can certainly, if necessary, distinguish hundreds and thousands of particular plants, but where you can never attain to a clear view of the totality. Yeah. And this is a problem for me trying to think like, what is it that this card represents even? There's that that episode from uh, the New Testament where Jesus goes to a, a village and meets this man who's possessed and when Jesus calls forth the demon and asks the demon for its name, because knowing the names of demons is a, an essential part of gaining control over them, the demon responds, our name is Legion. The sense is that the demon is inherently multiple. And in cases of possession to this day, one of the telltale signs of genuine possession to those of us who believe in such things is that the possessed will speak in many voices. There's a fragmentation, fragmentation, disorientation, confusion, disintegration of the unitary self. All these are signs of the presence of the demonic in the tradition where the devil holds pride of place. Um, so it is an inherently difficult topic to broach. <laughs> and also the fact that the personages involved, you know, when we're talking about the devil, like the ruler of hell, the kind of inversion of God being the devil mm -hmm. and just devils, various devils, like, for example, Mephistopheles, who appears in Goethe's Faust. Asmodeus, Beelzebub, yeah, Moloch. And the thing is that there's a certain kind of interchangeability. On the one hand, you can say like, oh, well, classically, you know, there's kind of a hierarchy. But as our known friend points out, that hierarchy is a teeming multiplicity. And he asserts that it is not a mirror inversion of the hierarchies of heaven. It's actually something quite different. It's almost like a mockery of, uh, it's a, like, if you read the old grimoires, or the demonology books of the late Middle Ages, you'll see hierarchies, but they don't quite make sense. You'll have lieutenants and you'll have like captains and they have ranks and princes and dukes and whatnot. But right. um, it almost seems kind of haphazard or, or arbitrary who has what. And in a sense, they're all claiming a title. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's kind of like the Muppets, you know? Hell is kind of like <laughs> the Muppet show. You don't really know who's in charge. You know, there's the point that Lionel Snell makes, which is like, you, you might find people who you find to be profoundly evil who do terrible things. You'll never find somebody who actually says they are practicing evil. It, really? Never? I think there are exceptions. There are exceptions, but those seem to be people who seem to be trying for something that's less magical in his fourfold understanding of the different capacities of the human, magic, art, religion, science. Keep in mind that the context of his argument here is a defense of magic from the satanic panic hysteria of the 80s, where people were associating magic with evil. And he was like, if you encounter somebody who's really trying to do evil, not doing evil in the sense of doing what they consider to be good, but they have a fucked up notion of good, but somebody who actually seems to be trying to yeah just do evil he's like it's probably more of an aesthetic thing than a magical or a religious thing well yeah like I, I, like the decadence you know fleur de mal and all this man attended a black mass by his own account at least and saw mm. things that were done obviously i mean there is always an inversion of the morality right like so in 
theistic Satanism. So this is the form of Satanism that upholds the actual existence of a principle, a divine principle that Christians associate with evil, but you know, it's an evil be thou my good sort of thing, where for them, mm-hmm. that is the good. So in a sense, I guess, yeah, that agrees with what Snell is saying, except that the means by which Satanism in that old theistic sense has manifested itself has tended to be a kind of innately, consciously, and deliberately perverse aesthetic uh, mm. for magical ends. So mm. I think you're right, but I think that as a Jungian, I have can't help but feel like there's a perverse side to the psyche, which can, in certain cases, in certain circumstances, come to the forefront and manifest itself. One of my favorite essays ever is Edgar Allan Poe's Imp of the Perverse, where mm-hmm. sometimes you want to do something because it's wrong. Like that's the reason you want to do it. Um, mm. And so I think we need to make a, some, some room for that in our discussion of what evil is. Because I do, I don't know. Yeah, satanic panic. You're right. That, that was a kind of hysteria. And often hysterias have to do with people who fancy themselves to be good, imagining horrible evils of their own, mm-hmm. like just imagine, manufacturing them themselves in their minds and then and projecting, projecting them around the world. But that in itself gives us reason to believe that in certain cases, some people might not only imagine, but act on those imaginings. Mm. So it seems like it could happen. And there is evidence that Satanism of that type, violent, criminal sort of Satanism, does and has existed. Sure. And I'm not negating that. I'm just trying to express my kind of philosophical perplexity when I try to wrap my head around this card and what it's supposed to represent, because there's a sort of chaos to it, but a kind of like um, there's a nullity or a vacancy at the heart of this. So like if you want to say what you stand for in life, as in an ethical principle, you have to stand for something. You're also going to be standing against something as well, right? So for example, somebody who cares a lot about social justice is going to be anti-racism. Anti-racism on its own, you have to ask, but what are the positive qualities of Mm anti-racism? Not positive quality in the sense that it's like makes you feel good or it's uh, ethically good or whatever, but simply logically speaking, in the sense that you can make positive utterance about it. You can say what it is rather than what it isn't. The problem with evil is that it ends up being a kind of a black hole of negation. And that's something that people actually have from the beginning felt fairly comfortable saying is that evil or the devil or a devil, Mephistopheles, for example, announces himself as the spirit of negation. As a fragment of a primordial darkness that forever resents the mere existence of things. Mm-hmm. And okay, so you're about the negation of everything that exists. But then you yourself become you, the devil, become a, just a patch of amorphous, inky blackness with no qualities, nothing to talk about, nothing to describe, nothing to hold on to. Exactly. Which is why he steals costumes from uh, Hades or Pan, right? <laughs> because, yeah. because all it is is negation in itself. You know, 
this is such a complex topic, and already I'm seeing my mind go in all these different directions. The traditional theological position in Orthodox Christianity, both Roman and Eastern, is that evil essentially does not exist as a positive being. So it's not Zoroastrianism, right? Mm-hmm. Which posited two equal principles, one of darkness and evil, one of light and good. Ariman being the famous principle of evil in that ancient religion, which had a huge influence on uh, early Jewish religion. So that's not the situation. Although in practice, Christianity often behaves as though there are two equal principles, God and the devil. And so what you need to do is fight the devil in the name of God, like the archangel Michael fights the hordes of hell in defense of the God of good. But of course, the Archangel Michael in that story is a mythology, and a mythology can't express a negation. It has to put some positive being there to represent the negation. But the theology has always been about, oh, okay, how do we get back to what's actually going on here? And Tomberg puts it beautifully when he says that you don't fight evil with the good. The presence of the good is already the annihilation of evil, right? So at one point he says, a demon perceived is a demon rendered impotent, because to see to shed light upon evil, to know is already to have defeated it. So evil there turns out to be a kind of pure negation, a pure force of negation. So what you were saying about modern ideological movements of all sorts is if they're purely predicated on negating something else, they are, first of all, they are parasitically attached to the thing they negate because they don't exist without the thing they're negating. And if they're not affirming something in and of itself, in light of which racism or any other questionable behavior or way of thinking is rebuked, if they're not positing something, then they can only remain in this parasitical relationship. And that's precisely what Jung means when he talks about shadow. You need to be affirming something in the name of which certain other things are automatically pushed off and rebuked. You can't just live to negate something because the negation in itself is already the problem. I'm just reiterating your point, but the doctrine, the official doctrine in the Christian tradition has always been that the devil does not exist, but the negation of existence has a being of its own, paradoxically. So it's been the cause Hmm. of endless problems because, and this was Jung's big objection to the doctrine of privatio boni, which is the privation of good, Augustine's doctrine that the devil or evil is simply the absence of goodness, Jung was like, that does not do justice to the real presence of evil in our world. And so Jung was trying to rehabilitate a more Gnostic idea of like, there needs to be a principle of evil. But that becomes a very dangerous path as well, because then you end up in a kind of dualism, in which case you have a perfect relativity of good and evil. And therefore there is, you know I mean? So it's, it's like, re- mm. again, it's like the minute you start touching this topic, everything gets, becomes very disorienting. I almost have a mental image of trying to get a grip on an object that has no particular shape. It's sort of a chaotic form of a completely unreflective Stygian blackness. Right. And sticky like tar. And so merely to touch it is to, be kind of drawn into endless wrestling attempts to free yourself from the entanglement of it. I'm not talking about evil as such, but as it were the... The idea of it. The the idea of evil? Yeah. Let's hear what Aleister Crowley has to say about the matter. This is a passage from Magic Book 4, and he's been talking about black magic 
And this is a, a section where he talks a lot about the Black Brothers, Black Magicians, what he believes to be true Black magic. And this has to do with his idea that the only true form of magic is the magic in accordance with the Holy Guardian Angel. And pretty much everything else tends towards Black magic. He calls the Black Brothers those that shut themselves up, people who use magic for selfish ends, people who remain enclosed in their own ego, who resist the kind of breaking open that magical practice properly understood involves. And he has many things to say about that. But he says, before leaving the subject of black magic, one may touch lightly on the question of packs with the devil. And this is in boldface type. The devil does not exist. It is a false name invented by the Black Brothers to imply a unity in their ignorant muddle of dispersions. A devil who had unity would be a god. Mm. Yeah. I think he's absolutely right. Yeah. And yet, it's the slanderer, the liar. It presents itself as a unity constantly, but then always breaks down in fragments into a swarm of flies the minute you... You know what I mean? Like it's, Yes, that's yeah. right. This is not... Crowley negating the existence of demonic entities. He says, it's always easy to call up demons, for they are always calling you, and you have only to step down to their level and fraternize with them. They will tear you in pieces at their leisure. Not at once. They will wait until you have wholly broken the link between you and your holy guardian angel before they pounce, lest at the last moment you escape. And then he goes on to say that this is what happened to McGregor Mathers. So <laughs> careful to work in a little bit of a grudge there. The magician, he says, however, is charged with, as he says, extending his empire to the depth of hell. He writes, my adepts stand upright, their heads above the heavens, their feet below the hells. So from Crowley's point of view, whatever the exotic flora and fauna of the spiritual world may be, the magician's job is to engage with all of it. And if you look at the Thoth Tarot, the devil card in the Thoth Tarot that Crowley did with Frida Harris, you see what looks like actually the stem of like an atomic mushroom cloud, yeah, complete with a, a ring around the crown of it, as is often observed uh, in actual atomic bomb explosions. And although it has a kind of eerie resemblance to an atomic mushroom cloud, it's actually the tree of life. And in this card, Crowley establishes that image of the tree of life as a figure for the magician who stands with roots deep in the earth, in the chthonic, in the demonic realm and head up in the heavens. And between these two points, a kind of straight line, an axis that connects all of the realms, heaven, hell, and earth. And so transcends the duality. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so that's an important part of, I think, to kind of work our discussion of the devil and evil, which threatens to become somewhat abstract. You know, think of it back at the tarot. In the tarot, you're working with 22 major arcana. I'm leaving all the other cards off to one side. But as we've often said in this series of podcasts, the 
various cards of the tarot deck are parts of the self. And, you know, to put it in a kind of Crowley-ish way, as the magician, if you are working with the tarot under the aspect of the magician archetype, then you are tasked with working with everything that presents itself to you in a draw, whether it's the emperor or the star or the world or the devil. Whether the cards come off to you as good or bad, you work with them. I just want to mention that it looks like a mushroom cloud, right? The the kind of central beam in the, the devil card, but it also... It's obviously a phallus with a set of testicles underneath. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes. Just in case someone else is looking at it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm looking past the first and most obvious interpretation. (laughs) Yeah. I will say in passing that the devil card is definitely the penis card. It is. It's the only card that has genitals, like in the old fashioned cards. In the Marseille, yeah. Variations on the Marseille deck, you see naked genitals that belong to the devil. Let's move to that one. There's a lot there. So what you're saying, though, before we move elsewhere, is that in the magical tradition, the goal isn't to rebuke hell and its demonic forces, but to integrate those forces. And this, of course, would align perfectly well with a a kind of Jungian idea of integration of the shadow. By rebuking stuff, you're just pushing it back down into the unconscious, into those areas of the real which you are not willing to face and therefore the only real answer is integration which i think in all fairness also corresponds to traditional orthodox mysticism which does exactly the same thing Mm. one of my favorite quotes from a a mystical quote is from isaac the syrian who said uh, what is a merciful heart it is a heart that burns with love for all humans, all animals, all demons, all of God's creatures. So to have a heart that burns with love for demons intimates a kind of integration or acceptance. You know, it's not the, the puritanical hatred of all things evil and the quest to eliminate it from this world. That, that would go against the basic drift of a mystical path. Mm. And Tomberg spends a couple of pages in his chapter on the devil talking about the two tiers of training in hermeticism or hermetic mysticism, which is at first, what you want to do is make sure that you teach your disciples the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, and inculcate habits in them of practicing the good. But once you've graduated from that level, you're not dealing with the make-believe demons of your imagination anymore, because he does have a very interesting distinction of two types of demons in his chapter. You're dealing with the actual demons, the actual forces, uh, you know, the real Black Brothers or those whom the Black Brothers serve. And that requires a different set of skills. And that involves accepting, meeting, and uh, ultimately integrating, you know, or transcending Mm. that world. So, because Tomberg makes this really interesting distinction. He says, the devil card on its face is talking about artificial demons. And these are demons that humans create. They create them with their will and their imagination. And the reason why the card, which I'll describe briefly so we all have a mental image. So the card has a pedestal on which is standing a obviously demonic satanic figure, a bat-winged androgynous figure, 
And at the foot of the pedestal are two smaller figures, a male and a female figure with theriomorphic features like antlers and pointy ears. Uh, and they are chained to the pedestal. And Tomberg goes, you know, he recognizes that our superficial initial reading will be, well, these two beings have been captured and have been enslaved by this demon. But he says, no, what's actually going on is that these two humans who are chained to the pedestal are the creators of the demon. And this card is about all of those ideations, all of those works of the will and imagination, right? Because will and imagination are associated with male and female respectively, which is why you have these two prisoners here chained to the pedestal. The creations of the will and imagination can end up ruling you. You can end up serving your own creations, the generations of your own imagination. And this card is about all those ways in which we humans, individually and collectively, generate artificial demons, which we then serve. And so this card is a call to awaken from that illusion which is why often the devil is certainly in Crowley's deck, but I think also obliquely in the Marseille deck, the devil is represented with three eyes, including a kind of a third eye in the forehead, which is a call to see through illusion. Mm. And I, I really enjoyed his chapter because he spends most of his time there discussing these artificial demons and how they are generated and how they can have power over us, and how liberation and always involves seeing through those aspects of the real which we believe are real, because they've become real through our magical use of the will and imagination collectively. We generate ideas, we generate ideologies. Seeing through that is enough already to liberate yourself from it. So it's a call to gnosis. I saw that in other books too, where the devil is seen as a figure of gnosis or a call to gnosis, or it, he's asking us to see through the delusions and illusions that bind us. But at the same time, he or it exists on the card as a figure of those very illusions as well. So again, kind of paradoxical and filled with antinomies, but that's part of the point of the card. One place where this has been very clearly formulated, I thought, was in Lee McCloskey's book, Tarot Reenvisioned. Have you looked at it, mm, Phil? It's yeah, a great, I have. It's a nice book. Marvelous book. Yeah. Beautiful. So, and he summarizes the meaning of the card as follows. Quote, one of the important roles played by this archetype is as instructor in the ways of the world and the magical properties of thought, will, and imagination. He goes on. The devil archetype teaches a fundamental understanding that repressed thoughts and energy mirror back and amplify their negative expression. All thought and emotion generate their own psychic reality within the individual. If the individual does not recognize his own hand in the creation of mental phantoms, he can inadvertently engender forces that act autonomously and aggressively. These seemingly very real devils are due to amplification of areas of the psyche that have congealed. What is created is, as the noted Swiss psychiatrist C.G. Jung writes, quote, an autonomous being capable of interfering with the intentions of the ego, possessing a mental life of its own, end quote. The illusory and psychological origin of demons, produced subjectively, becomes forces independent of the personal consciousness that engendered it. It is a magical creation, magic representing the objectification of that which takes its origin in an individual's inner life. So this is very interesting. The ambiguous relationship of devils, demons to our mind. Now, the obvious 
interpretation of the passage that you just read is that, as Alistair Crowley says, the devil doesn't exist. All demons are simply productions of our mind. And from this point of view, it's not very hard to understand demons, and it doesn't demand very much of us. It doesn't demand anything of our understanding of how the world works. However, what's interesting in the passage on page 405, where Tonberg starts talking about Tibetan lamas and the practice of making tulpas, making beings through visualization and meditation, shows that there's considerable ambiguity. We say, oh, well, devils, demons, you know, these infernal beings don't exist. They're just products of our mind. And if it's just a thought, I mean, you know, thoughts aren't substantial. They don't exist in the same way that the car parked in my driveway exists. But as Tomberg points out, in the practice of making tulpas, that distinction gets a little bit blurry. So this is a quote from page 405. It appears that in Tibet, the arcanum with which we are occupied, the double card, is known, and it is practiced as one of the methods of occult training of the will and imagination. The training consists of three parts. The creation of tulpas, magical creatures, through concentrated and directed imagination. Then their evocation. And lastly, the freeing of consciousness from their hold on it by an act of knowledge which destroys them through which it is realized that they are only a creation of the imagination and therefore illusory. The aim of this training is therefore to arrive at disbelief in demons after having created them through the force of imagination and having confronted their terrifying apparitions with intrepidity. This is what Alexandra David Neal, who wrote with deep knowledge of the subject, said about it. And this is a, a quote within my quote. Now we are quoting from... Alexandra David Neal. I have questioned several lamas on the subject of incredulity. Incredulity comes sometimes, answered Agesis from Durga. Indeed, it is one of the ultimate objects of the mystic masters, but if the disciple reaches the state of mind before the proper time, he misses something which these exercises are designed to develop. That is fearlessness. Moreover, the teachers do not approve of simple incredulity. They deem it contrary to truth. The disciple must understand that gods and demons do really exist for those who believe in their existence, and that they are possessed with the power of benefiting or harming those who worship or fear them. However, very few reach incredulity in the early part of their training. Most novices actually see frightful apparitions. And I find this interesting because... The masters who are training adepts in this art of creating tulpas want the practice to go through these steps that culminate in disbelieving in the creatures that you have created. But they also insist that, as David Nail says, the teachers do not approve of simple incredulity and deem it contrary to truth. So, Simple incredulity is what comes readily to we moderns, just believing that these creatures don't exist. There is some kind of intermediate belief that Alexandra David Nail is describing in this training that aims at transcending the illusion while at the same time recognizing that it's real. 
wrap your head around that. Yeah. I think that there's something innately paradoxical and strange about that. I don't want to oversimplify it. But there's no doubt that, I mean, think about all these tulpas that we routinely create in human history. The idea of a nation, for example, the idea of a taxation scheme. Mm. These things feel very real. And it's not like they only feel real to those people who are subject to those things. They're real to the people who are actively generating or propagating these forces. For example, no one believes Canada is real more than Justin Trudeau, presumably. He seems to really believe it's real. And yet he is the person at the top of the hierarchy of our current you know, administration, government administration. My point is, I'm, I don't want to oversimplify it, but I do want to say that, and this is even from a purely Marxist perspective, which Tomberg explores in here, culture has a kind of tulpic nature in the sense that it is generated through the will and imagination of people. But then once generated, it has a kind of reality. And it's not enough to say, I mean, as a teenager, I was very fond of saying things like, money doesn't exist, man. It's just a <laughs> social contract. You know, if you don't believe in it, you don't, it doesn't exist. Well, that didn't make money disappear <laughs> at all. Yeah. It just made me yeah. have less of it. Um, so <laughs> there's that simple read. But I think that what the lamas are getting at here is much more profound And it has to do with, I mean, here we could go back to our episode on hyperstition, where we were discussing in what way a hyperstition becomes real. And it's it's very complicated. It's not our topic for today. But I think that that's a central aspect of this card, because this card has to do with being careful of what you create, lest it comes to control you. Be careful where your imagination and will are directed. Make sure that the desires that fuel and drive your will and imagination are not desires that go against your or other people's real interests. You know, there yeah. are ways in which we can fall astray. We can, and the devil card calls us to awaken to that problem, to that danger. I love that he brings in tul- He also talks about egregores as collective tulpas, essentially. So when we talk about something like a nation state, that's essentially an egregore. At one point, he talks about the theosophical idea that you could have good egregores. So a lot of the theosophical societies, what they would do is they, or theosophically adjacent societies or whatever, what they would do is they would say, well, we'll get together and we'll create a good egregore to watch over our society. But for Tomberg, egregores are by nature limited. They're never going to replace a kind of direct connection to being itself, which is unlimited and boundless and all that and divine. This is what this card's about. At the same time as at the end of the chapter, he recognizes that there is another level, the actual demons, the the demons that aren't generated by the will and imagination. He calls those forces the hierarchies of the left. And here he's talking about those angelic intelligences whose job it is to test us, accuse us, and put us on trial such that we might prove to ourselves and to God, our ability to withstand or resist temptations. And here he takes a very ballsy stance, which I think you need to take if you're going to make sense of the tradition, which is that the true demons are not enemies of God. They work for God. He says it specifically, quote, they are not enemies of God. So he's taking basically the Jewish, what I understand to be the kind of Jewish attitude towards demons, which is that they are essentially 
angels whose job it is, their divine job is to test us. Mm-hmm. And uh, he does acknowledge the existence of such things. And after giving us ways of banishing artificial demons, he says, don't try these on the real demons. It won't work. The only way to get a real demon off your case is to actually be good, you know, in which case they can't get to you. Thank you.
just a fascinating topic to me. Um, as a kid, I had a babysitter, older lady from Northern Quebec. She was amazing. I've brought her up on the show before, and she just filled uh, our minds with stories about the devil from Northern Quebec. And so for me, the figure has always held a tremendous amount of kind of allure. And I think that that's part of the deal when you're raised in a kind of classically or traditionally Catholic setting is that the, the purpose of this figure is to allow certain aspects of reality, which are hard to acknowledge and accept according to the doctrines that you were taught, um, mm -hmm. allow them to become part of the conversation. So mm. I would say another paradox is that in traditional Christianity, the devil must be rebuked, but affirmed at the same time, which is mm. why you see depictions of Satan and cathedrals. Again, paradox and antinomies seem to be at the heart of it. And what this suggests is that the way to deal with the devil um, is something like what Crowley is saying, not by shunning or avoiding, but by working with in some way. In some way, of course, is tricky because as Tonberg says at the beginning, we can't identify necessarily with these aspects of reality without grave danger to ourselves. But somehow we have to work with them. And, you know, the tarot itself like presents us with this challenge of how, I mean, this kind of Jungian challenge of integrating these different difficult parts of ourselves. This brings me to, I think, a fairly major interpretive tradition within the tarot, which is thinking of the figure of the devil card, not as the Christian devil, but as Pan. And the argument, which you find in many tarot books, is that the early Christians, when they wanted to fashion a devil, they took the god of the pagans and they made it into the devil. They took Pan and made Pan a symbol of evil. There are some tarot decks that, in fact, call the 15th Arcanum Pan. They don't call it the devil. Mm -hmm. And that is an attempt to understand the energies of this card in a basically positive way. Removing that sense of the devil, what we were talking about before as a, a figure of negation, and thinking rather of Pan as an ultimate affirmation of everything. From which point of view, if you're working with the tarot, you're and you're therefore of necessity working with the 15th Arcanum, you are working not with this kind of paradoxical negative substance that in a sense can't be worked with, but you are working instead with pan, with all, with everything. Um, this conception certainly informs Crowley's approach to this card. It informs the figure of the devil, a kind of new figure of the devil, where the devil becomes not a figure of evil, but a figure of manifestation of material manifestation, earthly forms. So for instance, in Andrew W.K.'s song, The Devil's On Your Side, here's some lyrics from that song. I'm in the back of your mind. I'm in the front of your head. I'm in the meaning behind. I'm in the gold and the lead. I'm there when you're whirling the wheel. I'm there when you're facing the fire. I'm there when you're doing the deal. I'm there in the lower and higher. And um, it just goes through this, like 
line by line, I'm at the top of the stairs, I'm at the foot of the cross, I'm at the death of your cares, I'm at the moment of loss, I'm there when you're breaking the bone, I'm there when you're daring to dream, I'm there when you go it alone, I'm there when you're part of the team. It's just like, all of these are opposites, right? The devil is there in every place where there can be something, where something can manifest. And in this essay that I've written for a collection that's coming out this year, an essay called The Devil's on Your Side on the Shady Business of Hermeneutics, which I'm not going to get into very much, I do develop the lyrics of this song to understand a certain idea of the devil as the lord of earthly forms, the lord of earthly manifestation, the devil in that character, basically as a figure of materialism, which although I'd know very little about modern organized Satanism, the kind of uh, Satanism that Mitch Horowitz, for example, is involved with, my understanding is that it is a kind of spiritualized materialism. But this idea that the devil represents stuff, things, everything that can be manifested, and as such as a figure of both the glories and the limitations of that materiality. That's a pretty major interpretive uh, tradition around this card. I'm going to read actually from my essay just because it will save me some time. Yeah, I'd say the devil is there when you're at your lowest and your highest in moments of destruction and creation, impurity and incorruption. He's your worst enemy and best friend. He's not the devil of the Christian imagination then, but an ambivalent figure defined along an axis other than that which runs between sin and sanctity. His animating principle is not evil, but manifestation. He is the Lord of earthly forms. He is matter incarnate as against the spiritual. This is the esoteric meaning of the devil card in the tarot. As David Tudor, a noted avant-garde pianist and um, also an occultist, uh, as he wrote in his unpublished commentary on the tarot, the devil, quote, represents a principle of activity that seeks to penetrate the material and be clothed in it in order to be materialized. And I go on to gloss this a little bit more, and um, this is kind of my interpretation of what the devil's wisdom is, this particular kind of devil devil as pan, devil as this figure of material manifestation. I write, uh, we try to transcend this principle in moments of religious enthusiasm, but we can never in the end deny it. So long as we remain on this side of the grave, we're stuck in material existence and pray to its impermanence and imperfection and sorrows and also its joys. The renunciate's ideal of being in the world without being touched by it may be noble, but it is not quite human. To be human is to hate, and to love, and to desire, and to be disgusted, and to be stoked, annoyed, jealous, bummed out, weirded out, stoned, or helpless with laughter. When we scorn such aspects of existence, we amputate a part of ourselves. There's no cure for the human condition. Such is the devil's wisdom. So, how do you like them apples? Uh, I love it. And I, I think you're kind of partially doing what I was going to try and do, which is to reconcile the two readings, because I don't think they're opposed at all, um, mm. in essence. First of all, I never understood the idea that Pan was somehow slighted by becoming the figure of the devil. I think Pan would be absolutely <laughs> delighted to be that. Uh, I don't see what he, he has, doesn't have a moral bone in his body. What does he care? There's a moment in uh, Crowley's chapter where Crowley writes, the formula of this card, this is in the Book of Thoth, his book on the tarot. The formula of this card is then the complete appreciation of all existing things. The devil, 
rejoices in the rugged and the barren no less than the smooth and the fertile. All things equally exalt him. He represents the finding of ecstasy in every phenomenon, however naturally repugnant. He transcends all limitations. He is pan. He is all. Mm. Um, page 106 of the Book of Thoth. And if you want to just like hold on a little bit to Tomberg's reading, which is different, of course, because it's a Christian reading, you might say, well, okay, this is opposed to the idea of the devil in Christianity. Well, I'll agree that if we're going to judge Christianity by the behavior of Christians, yes. But if we look at the theology or the, what the actual writings and the, the myth, that it doesn't seem to be opposed to this at all. Repeatedly in the New Testament, the devil is called the ruler of this world. He is the ruler of this world. When Jesus gives Peter the task of becoming the rock upon which the church will be built, he does so in front, I think it's in, I can't remember the name of the town. It's in a town, he's, he's doing this in front of this cave, which is a temple of Pan. And he says, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So you got to see through the use of a kind of dualism in order to affirm something very different. To me, it seems that it's precisely because the devil is the all, is the kind of endless becoming of material reality, that we should integrate it and transcend it. If you look at ways in which magical traditions have attempted to integrate those aspects of reality which are, to quote Crowley, naturally repugnant, there have been different strategies. Ultimately, we're talking about Crowley's strategy, which is much, very much in line with, I would say, even with the Christian mystical uh, strategy, certainly in line with Tomberg's hermetic strategy, which is integration through acknowledgement, consciousness, expansion of consciousness, shedding light upon the darkness and letting things that were denied become accepted and become integrated into yourself so that you can stand with your feet below the hells and your head above the heavens. But there have been other strategies. This kind of boogeyman Satanism we were talking about earlier, the Black Mass celebrants, uh, which uh, I think it's just disingenuous to keep on saying, as many people do, that such a thing never existed, because there's plenty of evidence that it did, is another strategy, which is that indulgence is the strategy. It's by doing awful things that you transcend the awfulness. There are the left-hand path we've talked about before, and of course, not mm -hmm. all versions of the left-hand path recommend that stuff. But um, if you're going to embrace the absolute relativism of Pan, are you saying that? I'm not asking you. I'm asking the question generally. Are, is one saying, by affirming that, that all acts are equal, that there is no good and evil, that to, you know, to murder a child is the same as raising a child? Is that what we're saying? Because if that's what we're saying then there is a kind of conflict. But if that's not what we're saying, if what we're saying is that the key lies in acknowledgement, integration, and recognition of the sins I want to project on other people in myself, then I think that the two takes are perfectly aligned with one another. And insofar as Pan represents the way the world works, I think that Pam is pure affirmation. Insofar as Pan represents the way the world works despite good and evil, despite the good, then I think that Pan aligns with Tomberg, for example's reading of the card. I want to focus on something about the card, just the visual aspect of the card, that almost all designs of the card have a central figure on a plinth 
that we take to be the devil, a large central figure. And how that devil is rendered is very variable. But we have that central figure, and then we have the two figures that are chained to the base of the plinth, and that you see very widely. Although you don't see it in uh, Crowley's Soft Tarot, the subsidiary figures are contained in these globular, testicle-like roots of that tree. But to me, this is a card of duality. There's a strong sense of duality. It's worth noting, demons have horns, two horns for a reason. Cloven hoofs, forked yeah. tongue, doubling is all over the... Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that also includes a feature that you find in many of the old decks, many Marseille decks, where the devil has two faces, a face on his skull on the front side of his head, and then another in his belly or maybe his chest. The Hodorowsky Camoin deck, he also puts a pair of eyes, one on each knee. And so it almost seems like everywhere you look on his body, you see faces poking out, mm-hmm. a kind of motley assortment of features that actually there's a, in if you get the Library of Esoterica Tashin Tarot volume, which is a wonderful collection of designs of each of the 22 major arcana, there is on page 299 a card from a late 18th century deck by a Belgian artist known as Vandebar. I'll show it to you. I'll hold it up. You see that? Yeah, I love it. It's Where a, it's like the whole body is eyeballs and noses and mouths and it's just Which like speaks to what we were saying about the devil being inherently fragmentary. That it's a fra- the devil is yeah. fragmentation, the negation yeah, of the whole and everything is a part. No matter what part of the devil you're looking at, you're looking at a face because he's all these different faces, right? He's right. just this kind of swarm of fly faces. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is a perfect devil figure in a certain sense. Yeah. How so? Well, because it's like we were saying, hexaity without quiddity. It has no being. Mm. It's a negation of being. Yeah. Um, it's not like they find the germ. They don't find even a virus. They just, it's yeah. like, what is the thing? It's just the fact that this thing is happening. <laughs> yeah. This weird, you know? this yeah. weird decomposition of identity into a kind of mad motley apparently unguided process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I actually, however, have wandered from my point. That's just something about the depiction of the devil in this card that really interested me. But the two figures chained to the plinth definitely establish this sense of duality. We're talking vaguely about working with a card or working with the energies of the card or integrating them. What does that actually look like? I've been reflecting on this in my own life, that one hang up that I've been having to work on is hang up related to work and productivity. The problem goes something like this. I am a professor and a podcaster and the kinds of things that I make in my life are creative things. They're podcasts or pieces of writing or their lectures that I give, or conversations I have with my seminar students. But these are all kind of creative things. But it's also a job, and it's a job that I'm doing in 2024 in a kind of domain of hyper-capitalism where the command to be productive and to subject as many parts of your life to the regime of productivity is omnipresent, inescapable. 
and suffocating. And I spend a decent amount of my life bitching about that ethos of mandatory compulsory production. I spend a ton of time bitching about it on this show, and yet I find myself completely at the mercy of it, or at least where I'm at right now in my life. I'm trying to figure out how to do these creative things to engage in making right? The devil's business of making, producing stuff without falling into a kind of barren logic of technique whereby I am turning myself into my own jailer. I am my own HR department asking me to meet productivity quotas and calling myself on the carpet for gold bricking and lollygagging. <laughs> Which, of course, is completely destructive to creativity. Yeah. Doing the kinds of works that I do and love and care about that's really, you know, at the center of my life. It is mission critical stuff. How to engage with all that stuff without it turning into just more productivity, into a kind of enslavement to the material forms that I am endlessly generating. Now, you can kind of see where I'm going with this, because this is exactly what Tom Berg warns against, that you create egregores, you create these children of your thought, of your will and imagination. That then enslave you. Yeah. And then they enslave you. And of course, the image of the card, as you've already said, is one of enslavement. And Tonberg's innovation is to say, oh, those are not the children of the devil. Those are the parents of the devil. Those are the people who begat that devil. It seems to me that when you are entering this regime of technique, I keep calling it technique after Campania, but it just seems to be the Campania's diagnosis of this. And the fact that he is diagnosing it in a culture theoretical register while at the same time holding fast to the fact that there are metaphysical implications of this, I think makes his understanding of hypercapitalism particularly useful to me. Agreed. But, yeah. um, and so I keep coming back to this figure of technique. The technique is, I think, kind of like the, in a certain sense, the work of the devil right? It is the human business of making things, but put on a footing where that dualism becomes inescapable and tyrannical in your life. And the dualism is in part like, it's the fundamental dualism, me against the world, my perception of the things I make as things I am making over and against myself and putting out into the world. Ideally, I would simply recreate the world with my stuff. I would bury the entire world in all of the stuff that I produce. <laughs> but in so doing, I am creating an ever-renewed duality between myself and the world. I create a world and then find myself completely unable to live in that world. Do you right. see what I'm saying? Yeah. And this is like some shit that you might actually encounter in your life. You know, people often say, oh, well, you know, the devil card could manifest as like um, a destructive love relationship, like cheating on your spouse, or it could be drug addiction or something. All of that is obviously true. But it also can diagnose a certain relationship of yourself to the other in the most kind of radical way. The other being not just like 
an individual, a person, but simply that entire world that you are attempting to create a facsimile of in your productive mode. That's great. Yeah. If I ask somebody, where do you live? And they'll say, oh, I live in Nashville. And I'll say, no, no, I mean, like, you know, more fundamentally, eventually they'll say, I live in the world. I live in the universe. I live in like you do, you know. But the fact is that we all live in a different, slightly different universe because the universe is an infinite and inconceivable thing. The world is infinitely complex and impossible to grok in its fullness. And therefore, we all live in what we imagine to be the world. And what we imagine to be the world is the way we imagine things should go and things are meant to go. That is a creation, a co-creation of our will and imaginations with that of our respective cultural context, language, culture. It's not the world. And so to a certain extent, we're all chained to the plinth on which, you know, this idea of how things are stands. We all have a wrong idea of how reality works because reality is more complex and richer and stranger than any of us can imagine. That's my personal view. And so we could all use this card. There's no one on earth who, looking honestly within, won't see how much that they perceive to be the imposition of forces from outside themselves actually have their root in their own consciousness. And the beneficial effect of this card is to call us to pay attention, to shed light on those parts of ourselves which we perceive to be external forces. You got to transcend those things because that brings you closer to the mystery that the world fundamentally is. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.